Thanks for being with us. It is the May long weekend, which means, well, a lot of people heading out of town and uh, happened to be in the Fraser Valley yesterday and coming back. Thankfully, I wasn't in the traffic leaving uh, the lower mainland, Metro Vancouver, but a lot of people were. And for every one of those vehicles on the road, they are paying a lot of money to gas up those tanks. And that is what we are talking about with Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Good morning to you. Good morning. You are uh, once again calling on uh, some help at the pumps. So what kind of a reaction are you getting so far? Well, we're getting great reaction from drivers uh, who usually say something like, hell yes, <laughs> we need some help at the gas pumps because right now, obviously, we're spending uh, the most we ever have on gasoline here in Metro Vancouver. And then actually, when you get out, like you were just saying, to the Fraser Valley, it's not much better. And in uh, Victoria, for example, they're also paying high gasoline prices. And what I think is most annoying uh, for a lot of drivers is that we've got politicians in Victoria who say from one side of their mouth, wow, look at these high gas prices. Uh, Somebody's got to do something. Where on the other side, they're the reason, largely, that we're paying these high gas prices. It's a feature, not a bug. And if they really care and they really want to change the price of gas, um, they can do it. They can cut the gas taxes for right now, and that would give people relief. And then they can also do things like build infrastructure to get more gasoline and oil to our thirsty market here on the West Coast. And that would be longer term, but it would bring down the price because we'd have more supply of this stuff. Uh, and now every time that, that's brought up or put to uh, the politicians in Victoria, we get the response that it's not us, it's not all the taxes, it's the companies gouging. That is, it's one of the silliest things that we've really heard. Uh, number one, we can't really change what a company is going to charge for something. This is generally a free country, so we, we can't usually do that. What we can change is the taxation level, and it's 54 cents per liter for every single liter of gasoline in Metro Vancouver. So, yeah, that's causing a lot of the pain at the pumps. And also, government behavior can restrict or increase supply of any one product. And so, as we can see right now, because the province of British Columbia has picked a fight with the province of Alberta, and they've said you're not allowed to expand your Trans Mountain Pipeline, for example, um, that's obviously restricting the flow of oil and gas product into Metro Vancouver, And anybody who's spent a little bit of time thinking about economics uh, knows that if you restrict and strangle supply, that the demand will still be there and the price will go up. Um, John Horgan, Premier John Horgan's a very intelligent man. He knows this very well. And he's pretending to be mystified as to why we have high gas prices. And so that's why uh, we came out very clearly this week and said, you know, a lot of the power is in his hands. And it's why we actually call the day that we had this week Gas Tax Honesty Day, because a lot of people don't know how many and how much of taxes they're putting into their tanks because the politicians don't tell us. And so every year, uh, we, our team sits there and crunches all the numbers and we break it all down and we tell people every year. You've also uh, talked about it. It's not just the carbon tax, and you've uh, broken down the the number, all of the different taxes that get us to that 54 cents mark. Um, A lot of it goes to TransLink. TransLink says if we were to cut the TransLink tax on gas, that would have negative consequences when it comes to TransLink's operations. So how do you respond to that? 
We think there's plenty of room for TransLink to change the way they spend money and to do things more economically. Um, this always seems to happen. Whenever any party gets into power and says, you know what, we have to trim a little bit, the, the first thing you hear from those being trimmed is, oh, my goodness, this is going to be uh, affecting uh, senior citizens and they can't get to the doctor. Or, oh, my goodness, if you cut our city budget, uh, children won't be able to get breakfast at school. Really? Um, well, how about you guys actually stop wasting money? For example, the head of TransLink, the head of a regional bus board, really, makes more money per year than the Prime Minister of Canada. A lot more money. Why? Why are we spending that? Uh, TransLink officials get crazy perks, including vehicle allowances, which is ironic because they're telling us to take the bus, and free parking, you name it. Uh, TransLink's overspending has been very well documented. And on the other side of things, as we saw during the TransLink tax referendum that we won, that people voted against, and politicians seem to ignore that, we found that if these politicians in Metro Vancouver, especially these mayors who say they love transit so much, put just 0.5% of their future earnings and taxes, not increasing them, 0.5% of future earnings into transit, it would more than pay for it. They don't need to be gouging people at the pumps or putting in new taxes. Uh, the Angus Reid Institute uh, just did a, a survey on this, polling uh, people. Uh, the results, I thought that it was interesting because it was only in B.C. and Quebec uh, pointed the finger at oil companies for the high price of gas, whereas the rest of the, the country was more uh, leaning towards taxes, saying that taxes are too high when it comes to the price of gas at the pumps. Uh, are you surprised at all that, that even B.C. residents, I think it was about 47%, said it was the companies, not the taxes? I'm, I'm amazed uh, and quite surprised um, because when you say it's B.C. and Quebec, it's Metro Vancouver and places like Montreal that have the highest taxes in Canada. And to have those respondents say, saying that it's oil companies and not taxes, that's a big head-scratcher. Now, again, if there's a way somehow that oil companies could charge less, that would be awesome. Uh, one of the main reasons that ways they could charge less is being able to have more supply on the market. Um, and that is why we're saying, you know what, politicians need to stop fighting infrastructure. And again, here we go. We've got politicians, especially in places like Quebec City and Montreal, they're often the ones that are fighting oil infrastructure expansion. So that's another major problem. The two go hand in hand. And I really hope that drivers and folks out there filling up their gas tanks know why they're getting screwed at the pumps. They need to look to the politicians. Uh, what about the idea, I know it was brought up uh, in the conversations uh, about uh, the, the findings uh, in that survey as well, uh, but the idea of a maximum price for gas. See, that sounds attractive, the idea that somehow we could stop it at a certain level, but then you're getting into major manipulation coming from government into a product that everybody needs and uses, but is also privately owned and traded around the world. Then you start really tinkering. And to give an example, so prices in Atlantic Canada, in places like Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, their gas prices are regulated. Uh, the government decides when and how they can increase or decrease their, pro their prices. I lived there for years. The gas prices aren't that much different. When you look at the before-tax pump price, 
they're not that much different at all. It's not how like somehow they're magically way below a dollar or something like that because the government is saying so. It just doesn't work. And then it starts messing up with the supply and demand of the market as well. So we don't think that's the best way to go. To give folks an example, right now in Metro Vancouver, if you said that the pump price that you're looking at is about a dollar sixty nine a liter before taxes, that's about a dollar ten or a dollar eleven. Wow. And it's, uh, I mean, people are noticing it because that was one of the other things in the survey was, have you noticed, uh, has it jumped enough that it's made a difference in your daily life? And I think once we got to that 165 uh, yesterday, um, it was 170.9 in Vancouver. It was 155 in Abbotsford. Once we get to those levels, people, it does have an impact. It has a major impact on people. And so there's your day-to-day commuter, say, I like to try to say, Look at your family who may have one or two vehicles living in Langley so that they're being hit with the highest taxes possible. They commute to work. They drop their kids off at school. They fill up once per week, okay? Once per week, they fill up their minivan, say a Dodge Grand Caravan that has a 70-liter capacity. They're paying through the nose. And when you compare them, for example, to their same motorist cousins living in Seattle, downtown Seattle, not way out in the boonies, Seattle, Seattle, they're paying 50 cents more per liter, Canadian. Every time they fill up, they're paying $35 more living in Langley or Vancouver than they would if they were living in Seattle. World-class cities, absolutely beautiful places in the Pacific Northwest. Up here, we're getting screwed over. And what your, your point is really important, because politicians often say things like, oh, make different choices when it comes to using gasoline. I don't know about you, but I don't really know anybody who just drives around randomly burning gasoline. <laughs> they just don't do it. They're, they're going to work. They're going to school. They're picking up the kids. They're taking their mom to, for treatment, all sorts of things. And now, lo and behold, people are being forced to make different choices. And what that means is they can't afford it. These folks now, if you think about it, they're probably deciding to not go on that road trip this summer. They're not going to take the kids out to the Kootenays. They're not going to drive up to Prince George. They're not going to go over to the island, which, by the way, now has, has a higher ferry price, too, because of gasoline. So it's, it's sad. And I really wish that these politicians who claim to be so caring would actually clue in and do something about it. All right. On that note, uh, Chris, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much and uh, have a great rest of your long weekend. Thank you. Hang in there, everybody. (laughs) Earlier on in the program, uh, I shared with you just a couple of the comments uh, from Gary Lentz. He was speaking with Simi Sarah on Thursday. That's the day that the Beverly McLaughlin report was released. And Mike Smith, who's a province columnist, also a host here on CKNW, has written about this uh, as well as the uh, inquiry into money laundering. But let's start with the legislature spending and talk about that. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Sure, anytime, Jill. Uh, you talked, uh, your column on this is the winners and the losers. Who are the winners and the losers? Well, I think if you're going to go down, uh, well, first of all, the, the taxpayers are the losers, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we got burned on this thing, and even though Craig James has retired, quote-unquote, as the clerk of the House, I think he was actually jumped before he was pushed. If he didn't re- retire, he would have been fired. Uh, it, it appears that it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, for taxpayers to get recovery any of the money involved in this. So I'd say taxpayers are a loser there for sure. And then if you add up all the cost of these inquiries and, and the lawyers, a lot of lawyers here are working on the public dime. So taxpayers take a real hit. Um, as for Gary Lenz, I guess you got to put him down as a winner. He 
was found to have not committed any misconduct in this report, and he now says that he wants his his job back. Now, don't forget there there are other inquiries still going on, including a police investigation. So whether he gets his job back or not is unclear. And if he doesn't get his job back, if he's if he's cleared by the police, uh, then you got to wonder if taxpayers would be on the hook for a, a, a very expensive settlement uh, with him. Uh, Craig James certainly has to go down as kind of a loser on the piece as he's found to have committed misconduct by the former Supreme Court Chief Justice. And uh, he's taken a hard knock, but he walks into the sunset with his pension. So, you know, uh, Daryl and for Daryl Plekis, the crusading Speaker of the House, I think it was kind of a win-lose situation for him because he was he took some criticism in this report for the way he's handled this. But on the whole, uh, I think he was vindicated in that he did uncover wrongdoing at the legislature. He has forced changes there in terms of transparency and some of the spending rules. So I think at the end of the day, I think he still has a lot of public support for the way he did what he did. Uh, Gary Lentz says uh, that uh, he looks forward to uh, returning to work, that he knows that the job will be a bit different now in light of this, but he feels like he can still work with everybody. Uh, Do you think that will be, I mean, it seems like it would be a bit of an uncomfortable situation at first. Well, if I was his lawyer, I would have told him that's precisely what he should go out and say. Take the high road. Uh, Say that you're happy that you've been vindicated. You bear no ill will and you want to come back to work. Now, it's not that easy because there are still other probes underway, including, as I mentioned, a a police investigation. Now, he's just been cleared by the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. So you got to figure, you know, he's likely to beat the rap on the police charge as well. Now, if he escapes all of these probes, and then he continues to say he wants his job back, well, are (laughs) they... Is a guy like Plekis going to continue to work with him or the other House leaders after all this bad blood has been spilled? I think the more likely outcome is he's in a position to demand a very lucrative settlement. And that's another one where taxpayers, once again, hang on to your wallet because this thing has been a, a, a debacle. You know, this, is, this has been one of the weirdest scandals I've, I've seen over here, Jill, in a long time. And that's saying a lot. Yeah. Because there's a lot of weird stuff that's happened, but uh, this is one where uh, taxpayers are going to are probably going to take a bigger bath than they think. Uh, in the letter that Craig James released on Thursday, a lot of people on social media, the backlash to the one particular part where he says, but I've had enough. I've been publicly ridiculed and vilified. My family has been deeply hurt and continues to suffer humiliation. And that's when he writes that in an effort to put an end to that, he's decided to retire. I think you're absolutely right. right. So that was a, a decision that uh, he was, you know, there wasn't really another choice. Uh, but people are mad about that, saying, you know, taxpayers have had enough and, and demand and wondering about payback. Uh, but like you said, that's unlikely. Yeah, I, th- I think that there was a settlement that was negotiated between the Legislative Assembly and Craig James, and the government has been calling it, and the other House leaders have been calling it a non-financial settlement. So he does not receive any sort of pension, and it appears that he doesn't have to pay any of the money back. And I suspect that also part of that deal was to be very careful on the language about the the terms of his uh, departure. And he says that he has retired, and NDP House Leader Mike Farnworth also was careful to use that word as well. He's retired. He has not 
resigned. So he has retired. In other words, this is his decision. I, I imagine this is part of the uh, this secret settlement that has been negotiated. But I, this is, the, I guess, the the best possible outcome for him to leave under these circumstances, to not have to pay any money back, to not admit any wrongdoing, and to say that he's not quitting, he's retiring. And there's a lot of money that's been paid out here. I mean, the, probably the biggest the biggest hit to taxpayers on an individual item is $257,988. That's how much was paid out to Craig James in his so-called retirement benefit that the, the former chief justice found constituted misconduct. And there, there appears to be no indication that that money will be returned. Then you've got over $2,000 worth of designer suits and $2,000 worth of luggage and you know the use of this the famous wood splitter. So this is all money, public money, that um, is, appears to be down the drain. These, the speaker, Daryl Plekis, was asked the other day, are we going to get this money back? And he said it's very complicated legally, was the way he put it. And the buzz over at the legislature was it would, it would appear to be very difficult to recover this money. And even if you tried, it would probably end up in court and probably cost you even more in lawyer's fees than the amount of money that's been paid out. So poor old taxpayers just got, you know, kicked in the butt again, you know? <laughs> well, and that's what I think. So, so is it too much of a stretch then to look at that, the retirement benefit, uh, which uh, you've put in quotations in your column, the $257,988. If that was found to be misconduct, is it too much of a stretch then to say that, that w- it was stolen, that, that he shouldn't, if he wasn't entitled to it, why does he get to keep it? Well, I think it's a good point. I mean, this is this is money that was paid out some time ago, and on a very complex rationale for it. And I, I guess if the government did try to recover it, um, it, it may have been cost more money to recover it than the than the money that was worth. So it's, it's almost like writing off a writing off a car that's been damaged in an accident. It's not worth fixing because it costs more to fix than to than to just to, to just write it off. So I, I that's the I guess the rationale that's being offered by the government on this, but it still doesn't make it any less uh, unsettling for taxpayers to have seen all this money once again be paid out in a, in a place where there has been spending irregularities in the past. And there have been alarms raised many times over the years about lax spending rules and waste, waste of pu- the public's money over here. I remember John Doyle, who was a former auditor general like a decade ago, trying to ring the alarm bells on this, and nothing was really done. So some people can point at Daryl Plekis and say he's he was kind of like a, a bull in a china shop, the way that he handled this. Um, he took in he he suffered some criticism in this report and the way he handled this uh, affair. But I think at the end of the day, most taxpayers would say that he. He, he uncovered wrongdoing, and there have been changes over here to try and prevent it from happening again. So if there's any kind of silver lining here, hopefully this doesn't happen again in the future. Well, that was my, my, my last question on that, if, yeah. if we will see change. Because remember, too, that I think one of the issues was the fact that these guys, even though they're paid for out of taxpayer money, we don't see where the money, there, there's not the same transparency as elected officials. Will that change? Uh, hopefully, uh, there have been some changes proposed for freedom of information and, and uh, public disclosure. There's been suggestions to tighten up the spending rules because a lot of the things that the people find frustrating about this as well is they hear about these uh, round the world, high class jet set travel, and 
they wonder, this is crazy. What, going to Scotland and, and visiting St. Andrew's Golf Course as, as part of a cultural experience? I mean, this is ridiculous. And yet the, the former Chief Justice said, well, actually, that's okay. She didn't find that to be misconduct. And in some ways, that did not surprise me because the rules are, are very loose around the, in the building. In fact, in a lot of cases, there are no rules. So one of the recommendations from the former Chief Justice is you guys should get your act together in terms of some rational, reasonable rules around spending and how the spending is recorded here. And I think for a lot of taxpayers, they're probably thinking, like, yeah, no, duh. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. So hopefully it will be cleaned up because this is one that's really angered the public, as you know. Indeed. I yeah. want to quickly, uh, we only have a couple minutes, but you've also yep. written about the money laundering inquiry. Uh, what do you think, are we going to learn what we need to know about this from this? How will this unfold? I hope so. I think that the terms the terms of reference for the inquiry are what a lot of people were looking for. This is a, a commissioner that is respected by the public, of a, a judge and a former prosecutor. I think that's the type of person you needed in there. And you needed full subpoena powers to compel witness, witness testimony, production of evidence, and to find people in contempt if they do not cooperate. So all of that is in place, Jill. And I think there's a lot of hope and optimism that it does result in, in some good. So I think the government's done the right thing. But people should... Don't don't uh, don't be fooled about the politics of this. The NDP love this because it's really damaging the Liberals, and they hope it damages them even more. All right, uh, people can read uh, your columns. Uh, you have two uh, both on these topics. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show this morning. Yep. Appreciate it. Any, anytime. All right, you may have heard this story uh, before, and it's an amazing story of survival. It involves a Vancouver doctor by the name of Chris Dawkins. Uh, he had just finished working out. This happened in February at home. He collapsed, and he was actually clinically dead for about 52 minutes. He was then treated at St. Paul's Hospital uh, with some very specialized equipment, uh, some highly trained staff, and uh, miraculously, he survived. That story was so inspiring to uh, one person in Vancouver. He actually made a $1 million donation to the St. Paul's Foundation, and that's going to help more people. So joining me to talk a bit more about this is Dr. Dan Calla. He is the head of emergency at St. Paul's. Dr. Calla, thank you so much for being with us. No, my pleasure. Thanks for uh, when people hear the story, and obviously it uh, prompted this person to make a donation, but people are just amazed by this story and uh, the, the fact that here's an individual who was declared uh, clinically dead for 52 minutes and, and was brought back. How how out of the, the norm is that? <laughs> I, it's extremely uh, unusual. You know, uh, the statistics when you have a cardiac arrest, when your heart stops, basically every minute that passes, your likelihood of survival decreases. And after 30 minutes, there's something like a less than 1% or 2% chance of, of recovering, or at least recovering with any brain function. You know? um, and so 52 minutes is a staggeringly long time to be dead for and come back to life. And I know you weren't uh, involved right in the actual, the, the moments that this happened. But so mm-hmm. what, what was it in this case, do you think, though, that, that made it a success? Well, it's the, the, the perfect, as I understand, it's the perfect alignment of responses, you know, from from his wife, who recognized what had happened right away and started CPR immediately and called the <clears throat> called nine one one, and then there was a rapid response of very uh, capable paramedics who continued the CPR and more advanced resuscitation, and also recognized the potential of using the new program at St. Paul's 
uh, called eCPR uh, because he wasn't responding to standard measures. And so they, you know, it all flowed so perfectly, of course, on the St. Paul's and the team was waiting for him and got him on the cardiac bypass machine in an incredible amount of time, something like 10 or 11 minutes. So everything went as perfectly as it could in this case. And it sounds like if any one of those things hadn't happened, it could have, we could have been, it would have been a very different outcome. For sure. I think uh, all those things had to happen for for him, for, for him to survive. Uh, a donor came forward after hearing this story and seeing this story and donated a million dollars to the St. Paul's Foundation. A million dollars sounds like a lot of money, but in health mm. terms, it's not a huge amount. What will that do, though, for the hospital? Well, it's it's been a wonderful infusion of, of, of funds to support, particularly this, this program. Um, you know, each machine, each of these bypass machines that, that we use, and we don't, you know, we, we it's, the emergency is not the main use for them. It's during heart surgery. It's at other times to support people's heart, hearts in hospitals. So we're the only center in Canada that does this out-of-hospital cardiac arrest where we support, where we start the program right in the emergency room. But each one of those ECPR machines are like a quarter of a million dollars. They're extremely expensive and take incredible expertise to run. And then there was other equipment that was able to be purchased, such as the Lucas chest compression. Those are those, rather than doing manual CPR, these these like piston-like devices that compress the chest and, and assure consistent and unfatiguing uh, chest compression. So, um, and also an arterial blood analyzer for the emergency department, which makes us be able to analyze in real time the results of the resuscitation based on the blood gas. So. All that equipment was possible because of this really generous donation. And has it changed then the outcomes? Because I remember years ago taking a first aid course and, and the paramedics saying, it, it, it's great, you need to know this knowledge, you need to know how to do this. But unfortunately, when somebody has a cardiac arrest, the success rate is very, very low. So is this changing the success rates and being able to bring people back? Yeah, I mean, yes, slowly, right? It's, it, it, that's, what you said is totally true, Joe. Like, I mean, you know, for years, decades, it's you know been around ten percent or less people who have a cardiac arrest will survive them, and, and you know. But what this program targets is the healthiest of people, ones who have you know just unexpected or un, you know a sudden blockage in a coronary artery or some other reason for their heart to stop, and they're the ones with the highest likelihood of surviving. And so, it gives people an opportunity that would have never had it before. I have, Dr. Dawkins would not have survived. We, we know that 100%. He would, have, he would not have survived without this program. So, you know, the survival rates are, are never going to be 80% or 90%. But if you take them from 0% in these refractory cases to 30%, that's amazing. That's three out of 10 lives saved. So, and, you know, we don't know what the, the best end point is, but it's, we're very proud of this innovative program that we're running at St. Paul's. And, and you touched on something too, I think, that, that also uh, people grasp on this story, is that here we talk about a, he, a 55-year-old man who had just finished working out. He seemed to be completely healthy and then goes into cardiac arrest. Are, are we seeing an increase in that? Uh, probably not an increase. You know, in, in general, cardiac health has probably Im- improved over the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. But, but the problem is there's a lot of people who 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 are 
fit and eat well and do everything right who have unknown cardiac disease. They have a, a single or multiple silent blockages in their coronary arteries, and, and those are the ones at the most risk of just dropping dead suddenly because, you know, they have no treatment for it, and it's completely unexpected. So it's it's those patients that will always be at risk for this happening. And and in seeing the technology, then, like you said, these machines, a quarter of a million dollars each, uh, they're not not cheap, and and for uh, for a good reason. Uh, where do you go from here with the technology? Then, are you as far as St. Paul's having uh, these these machines? Are, are you in a good position now, or is it always? Are you always needing more? Well, this infusion is great for right now. I think it gives us the equipment we need to expand the program and and just perfect it right i mean this is that we started from nothing dr brian Grunow, who's a merch doc who who is really be the impetus behind this program has brought you know other programs uh, that were in the world across the world doing this but but we'd never seen anything like it and it, it's kind of like a he describes it like a pit stop for uh you know for a race car right everything things that have to happen in seconds with multiple things it takes incredible practice and synchronization and coordination and likewise our colleagues are the paramedics who bring the patients in have to do so much prep for us and 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 recognize the right cases to bring in so it's been a, a learning curve but we're getting better and better at it and with with now with this new equipment we'll be able to continue to expand it how long would it take then uh, for a doctor or to to be trained on the equipment is it is it a long process then to get up to speed to be able to use it Sure, and it's not just doctors. You know, we have the perfusionists who run; the, they're experts in just running bypass. You know, we have cardiac surgeons and cardiologists who have to help get the lines in place and and, and do it. And so, yeah, it's it, it takes a long time and a lot of expertise, and you need the right people. But but more than just you know any one procedure, you need the synchronization, you need the teamwork, and uh, that's what we're getting a lot better at right now. All right. Well, it's uh, it was a fascinating story and uh, leading to that donation uh, to, to more equipment, uh, just a, a great news story. We will leave it there. Dr. Kala, thank you so much for your time today. Great. Yeah, thanks. We are taking a look at uh, the economic ties between BC and Alberta. And my guess is if you were to ask anybody, are there close ties between the two provinces? The answer would be yes. But if you asked them just how much is depending on that, what kind of money figures we're talking about, the figures might be a lot bigger than you imagined. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Ken Peacock, Vice President and Chief Economist at the BC Business Council, also uh, the author of a new report that looks at this. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good to be with you, Jill. Uh, you're taking a look at just how linked the two provinces are. Uh, so what did you find? Well, we found that the interconnections are actually surprisingly strong. I mean, like you said, most people would guess that they probably are significant and important. But, I mean, just as a high-level number, the value of trade and goods and services going back and forth between BC and Alberta is $30 billion annually. So that's a, that's a significant figure. And I mean, to provide some further context, what we actually <clears throat> export to Alberta and goods, that's excluding services, is more than what we export uh, to China each year. So the trade relationship is significant. Uh, that is. And I think, again, I think because we're on the coast, I think people would uh, jump or, or think that we probably do more overseas, but it's not. It's right uh, literally in our backyard. Yeah, literally. Trade within Canada is important. That's one of the reasons... 
governments over the years have paid attention to internal trade barriers. I mean, they don't, again, they're not really sexy to talk about and they're not really, really large issues. But the volume of goods and services flowing back and forth, you just don't want any barriers impeding those at all. And what, is there the bulk of it to one particular good? Well, yes, not, not surprisingly, the, uh, what Alberta exports to B.C., the top product is refined petroleum products. Um, but the list is very, very diverse, and it's long. Uh, we do have um, the top 25 items itemized in the report that you, you referenced. It can be found on our website, but uh, I'm not going to go through all those right now. But food also comes from Alberta. That's the second largest category. Um, and then mineral support services, which is interesting. This is all the support services that go into uh, natural gas exploration and natural gas development, and a lot of those services flow across the Alberta border into BC. So that's a big export for Alberta. Now, going the other way, BC's largest export into Alberta happens to be natural gas, but our second largest export is transportation services, and this speaks to the importance of the gateway for Alberta's economy. But we also generate and earn uh, a bunch of export revenue from providing those services to Alberta as they get their products out to overseas markets in Asia. Uh, right, because that might be uh, one area, too, where we, we think that to BC, I don't know if we'd say upper hand, but is perhaps, I mean, BC is the port, BC is the coast and that and is the, the portal to overseas markets. So uh, Alberta needs that. Alberta absolutely needs that. The, the, the Federation needs it. And again, this is why constitutionally the federal government has jurisdiction over transportation is for precisely that reason, because if there are provincial spats from time to time, you don't want a situation where a province can landlock or block another province's access. Because really, at the end of the day, we are a federation. We're much better off when we cooperate. And any sort of trade wars internally are, are something we absolutely do not want to see. Well, we've certainly had spats between BC and Alberta in the past. And I think you could characterize the one right now over the Trans Mountain pipeline expansion is continuing. So what kind of damage does that do? Well, <clears throat> It just, uh, of course, it depends what happens, if, if anything. Um, so, but I think just any time you're at implementing any sort of barriers and then the, the risk for that to escalate and get in a little bit of a tit for tat, uh, that, that's problematic. We, uh, we don't want to see that. It just adds cost. It adds uncertainty. We've got enough uh, uncertainty with uh, our, our trading partners south of the border and other geopolitical issues. We don't need to be doing that uh, internally here in, in between BC and Alberta. And it's interesting, you mentioned that, that, that too, and that's the, the reason why railways, uh, ports, uh, pipelines are federal, uh, fall, fall under federal jurisdiction. But in listening to what's been said about uh, the pipeline expansion and uh, people who are opposed to that, it, there does seem to be this argument put forward that no, no, the provinces can stop these things and can stand up for themselves. Yeah, I think I think constitutionally it's pretty clear that transportation and, and pipelines do fall under federal. I'm, I'm, I'm far from a constitutional or legal expert, but a high-level reading of the Constitution, that would be my interpretation. Uh, it, I guess it's to be determined what what happens in, in court uh, on, on this particular issue. Uh, when we talk about that and that number, the $30 billion number of, of interprovincial trade uh, annually between the two provinces, uh, is there potential there, though, that we're missing out on? Um, no, not not yet, not yet. That that everything you know, as the goods and services are flowing back and forth across borders. Uh, I, I don't think there's any sort of op- missed opportunities at, at this point. Relations are still good, and that's such a, a, a large number. I mean, there's so much activity flow, flowing back and forth. So, 
I don't think we're in anywhere near uh, that level of concern at this point. Um, the the other thing, though, just to shift gears a little bit here, that is interesting between the BC Alberta relationship is the labor market, and and I say that just because when you look at interprovincial migration, uh, more people move back and forth. The bilateral flow between BC and Alberta is, is greater than between any other provinces in, the, in, in two provinces in the federation. And I guess, I mean, it's a bit intuitive because we're intertwined and interconnected and everybody knows somebody's moved to Alberta or come back. But when you consider Ontario is, you know, two and a half, three times the size in population, it's a bit surprising that, you know, the say the flow between Alberta and Ontario isn't greater. So there really is this kind of Western labor market, although there's two labor markets, you know, the BC Alberta and the BC labor market and the Alberta labor market, there is this kind of functioning of a Western labor market just because the flow back and forth when labor market conditions differ across the two provinces. And is that, that is an interesting one. And is that people like temporary placements and people moving back and forth or, or is people? It's a, it's a bit of both, but the, it's the migration, the interprovincial migration, the, the movement of people really is significant. Um, I, if we just look at the past decade, I think, what is it, uh, 225,000 British Columbians moved to Alberta and a few more Albertans, 253,000 moved to B.C. So B.C. had a little bit of a net inflow. So we're talking half a million people over the past decade relocated to one of one of the two provinces. And like I said, no other two provinces have a, a, a flow that even comes close to approaching that number. Hmm. It's an interesting number, too, because I think if you just anecdotally asked people, we would, and probably because news coverage, we often talk about people leaving BC because of the high cost of living and going elsewhere. And Alberta is often one of the destinations. But I think people might have thought that it would, would have been tipped the other way, more people going to Alberta. But that's interesting that there's more people from Alberta coming to BC. Well, okay, so that, <clears throat> the number I just referenced was uh, a cumulative number over 10 years right but, but your intuition is very good jill because in the last couple quarters most recently uh that's exactly what's happened the flows have turned the other way more people were coming to british columbia but now there's actually more people moving to alberta on a net basis and i think you put your finger right on the key reason for that and that is because of the high housing high cost of housing here in the province particularly the lower mainland and this is also a bit, of, and again, the housing cost issue really, really does loom large here in my mind because the BC labor market is much more robust and much stronger than the Alberta labor market right now. So this is a circumstance where you typically expect more Albertans to be coming to, to the West Coast looking for work. But in fact, we're seeing the exact opposite. We have more British Columbians moving out, and I think you're exactly right. Housing, housing costs are probably the main reason for that. And just to touch finally, uh, uh, internal trade barriers, and you touched on this earlier, but uh, with with eliminating those or, or looking to elim- eliminate those, have we done enough in that sense? We've done pretty good. This is the this is the other interesting thing, and this is the, the, the thing that I find a, a bit perplexing here is recall that BC and Alberta pioneered uh, a trade agreement, an internal internal trade agreement called TILMA, and and then it's a follow up. A partnership or program that included Manitoba and Saskatchewan, the U.S. Partnership Trade Agreement, which effectively eliminated all trade barriers uh, between provinces for the ones that are signatories. So, yes, we we have done a, a lot, and like I said, it's interesting to note that kind of BC and Alberta were the pioneers of that, breaking down these barriers and ensuring goods uh, and people moved freely across the borders. There's a, a bunch of uh, professional designations that are in that agreement to ensure that, you know, people can move back and forth, like dental hygienists and stuff that requires certification can go back and forth between the two provinces. So it really was a comprehensive 
agreement. So it's a bit unfortunate to see sort of that agreement tested or challenged a little bit with what's going on. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Ken, thank you so much, though. Uh, Really interesting numbers. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks, Jeff.